0: I want to invite you to turn to God's word to Colossians chapter 3 and as rich and timeless as a hymn such as we just sang is how much more God's eternal and inerrant word and so to that we want to look Colossians chapter 3 if you're using one of the Bibles in the seats in front of you uh, in those volumes there's a couple of different volumes it's going to be either page 925 or 984 but we're moving into Colossians chapter 3 this morning uh, in a text that that brings forth this title on being heavenly minded, on being heavenly minded. Just before we get into things, I want to just mention, even as Tim uh, mentioned, our brother and our friend Don Kinzel, uh, who so many of you know, went home to be with the Lord this last Friday. Uh, I think it was just two weeks ago today, he was last present with us, uh, usually sitting right in between you all, right, Kathy and Yeah, and uh, so in God's providence, he's now at home with the Lord, and uh, uh, he did just turn 90 years old uh, while he was in ICU, and so I know so many of us have hearts that are heavy uh, just with sadness because we miss him, we loved him, he was a dear man who was a faithful part of things here for many years, and uh, we certainly grieve for his family as well. But I want to let you know, and we'll be getting information out about this as well, there's going to be a memorial service for him right here this next Saturday at 1 p.m. And so I want to make sure that you're aware of that. Again, uh, we'll be getting information out uh, within our channels uh, for members and all, uh, So, just so that you're aware of that. But it'll be uh, next Saturday, which is the 23rd at 1 p.m. here at the church. And be praying towards that time, as a lot of his family, of course, will be here And I know many of you as well, and other friends, so I want to make sure that you're aware of that. Uh, The Apostle Paul declared in Philippians chapter 1, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And uh, Don knows that in the fullest way that we can imagine, and so we rejoice with him in that, even as we grieve his absence. But uh, continue to pray for the family, and even to be encouraging to one another. Well, we are moving into Colossians 3 today as we closed out things in chapter 2 last week. And, and there's really a shift in Paul's thought. We know that the chapters and verses of Scripture are not themselves inspired. They were added, added after Scripture was given. Uh, But in the flow of Paul's thinking, he's turning a bit of a corner, and he's beginning to now work out the ethical implications of the theological truths that he has been declaring in chapters 1 and 2. And we've seen, and I've mentioned repeatedly, that in the focus of this letter, two believers in the city of Colossae Paul is very thankful for the rich gospel fruit that he sees evident among these believers, but he's also burdened because of the presence of false teachers and false teaching, and he's burdened for them to avoid the seduction of such false teaching, and he wants them to continually be flourishing in their walk with Christ. And so this morning, what am I doing? Oh, I'm getting the signal. Dismiss children. Is that it? Thank you. I would just like to pause for a moment, and uh, we want to, as we do on the—is this the third Sunday already? On the third Sunday of every month, we uh, have classes available for children grade six and below. And uh, sorry, I'm out of the swing of things because we had our summer break. So uh, they're welcome to remain in here for families that desire, but we also have these classes geared towards them and uh, their faithful leaders who are dutifully reminding me to be sure and dismiss everybody. So. Uh, blessings to all the young ones that that are present for that. Well, we are going to look at verses 1 to 4 as we pick up with uh, Paul's focus of thinking here. So let's hear uh, the eternal word of God for us today. And I'll start in verse 1 of chapter 3 and read through verse 4. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And thus says the Lord God. Let me lead us in prayer as we seek his help. O oh, Father in heaven, how good you always are to your people. And as you plainly call us in this passage to seek and to set our minds on things above, where Christ is at your right hand, please teach us what this means and how it is we're to do this. And may we fully declare, even as the psalmist did, as we heard earlier, that there is nothing on earth that we would desire besides you. Father, please help me by your spirit to rightly divide your word and to proclaim what you've revealed. We pray all of this for your purposes in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, you may know that it was the physician and poet, Oliver Wendell Holmes, Sr., who first famously said sometime in the 1800s, quote, some people are so heavenly minded that they are no earthly good, end quote. And then you may also know that it was that great American theologian and minstrel, Johnny Cash, who gave melody to this thought in 1977 with a song entitled, No Earthly Good. And no doubt you've heard that phrase perhaps in other forms. But that phrase expresses a criticism and an accusation And the criticism and accusation in the sentiment is that some people can be so consumed with thoughts of heaven that they are oblivious to earthly needs and useless, therefore, for helping anybody in any practical and beneficial way. There's a tone of scorn, as that phrase is often used. Now, no doubt the accusation can be accurate for many who indeed maybe are consumed with escapist, sentimental, earthly ideas, strange as it may be, about heaven. You know the kind of folks I'm thinking about, nice folks whose theology is informed more by the local hallmark store than anything else. Uh, People whose thinking and speaking is filled with superficial, shallow platitudes that ultimately are meaningless and very unhelpful. But in our text this morning, in Colossians 3 verses 1 to 4, God gives a direct command through Paul for his people to seek and to set their minds on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And then immediately following verse 4 through the end of the letter, Paul works out exactly what this heavenly-mindedness should look like in the daily lives of believers, in the daily lives of his people. And what this tells us at the outset is that there is a false and a misleading heavenly-mindedness that has nothing to do with the true, robust, hope of the gospel in Jesus Christ. But in Jesus, there is a true, necessary, and powerful heavenly-mindedness that produces true earthly and eternal good. And so in verses 1 to 4, Paul is giving a strong and a straightforward exhortation. He's giving a call that is binding on all Christians' at all times. And you see it expressed there in verses 1 and 2 with the two parallel statements which reinforce the importance and significance of this. He says at the end of verse 1, seek the things that are above. And then in verse 2, set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Now the key to understanding God's call is that Paul is not saying just be heavenly-minded in some kind of vague, mystical, and sentimental way. No, instead what he is saying is that the things above center on where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. And for every believer, our lives are hidden with Christ in God. As Wilson made reference to when he prayed a little bit earlier, Jesus Christ is is the heart of heaven. And so the call to be heavenly-minded isn't just to be heavenly-minded per se, but it's to be Christ-minded, to be Christ-focused and centered on him. So in other words, God's call to seek and to set our minds on things above is a call to live a Christ-centered life in the fullest sense of the concept. Now, I'll summarize it this way. Here's what I would uh, put forth as the big idea, the main point of this whole passage. And it's this. It's pretty straightforward. Christian, for you who are a believer in Christ, God calls you to live a Christ-centered life. If you're a believer, God calls you to live a Christ-centered life. In other words, to be truly heavenly-minded by being fully Christ-centered be truly heavenly-minded by being fully Christ-centered. Now, in our text, in verses 1 to 4, we're going to see how Paul uh, develops this call with three different parts. In other words, this call involves three different parts. I'll mention them, and then we'll go through them one by one. But it involves, first of all, knowing your eternal identity, knowing your eternal identity, Second of all, doing your present duty, doing your present duty. And then third, knowing your future destiny. Those are the parts, if you will, of the call to live a Christ-centered life. Know your eternal identity, do your present duty, and know your future destiny. So let's look at each one of these as they move along in the text. First of all, Christian, know your eternal identity. And you see how Paul begins in verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ. And it could also be legitimately translated, since then you have been raised with Christ. And then drop down to the beginning of verse 3 when he says, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Now, let me say the second part of this call, the doing of our present duty, is what we find in uh, verse 2, at the end of verse 1 into verse 2. But on either end of that statement, at the end of verse 1 and into verse 2, we have uh, these statements regarding, first of all, that we've been raised with Christ, and then in verse 3, that we have died with him and that our life is hidden with Christ in God. And what Paul is speaking about is our identity, our status in Christ, if indeed we belong to him through faith. In verse 1, he says, we've been raised with him. In verse 3, he speaks of our death in him and how our life is hidden with Christ in God. And what I want you to see at the outset is how Paul intentionally puts these two statements as bookends to his commands in verses 1 and 2 for us to seek and to set our minds on things above. So in other words, our present duty, which we'll look at in a little bit more detail in a few moments— our present duty being what it is, Paul is wanting to stress that our doing of our duty flows out of our identity, out of our status in Christ. He's in essence saying then, be who you are, but he's putting the emphasis at the outset on our identity, our eternal identity in Christ, that we've died with him, our life is hidden with him, we've been raised with him. And the essence of our identity and our status in what Paul is talking about has to do with our union with Christ. That we have been brought into real spiritual union with Christ. And this is what Paul is stressing. In other words, we have union with him in his death. We have union with him in his resurrection. And we have union with Christ in his life. And for every single believer... Whether you just became a believer this past week, or whether you've been a believer for 60 or 70 years, this is your eternal status and identity. You have union with Christ. Now, Paul has already really spoken of this back in chapter 2. If you slip back there and look at verse 12, and drawing on the reality of of baptism as being a symbolic expression of these spiritual realities, he says in verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And then down in verse 20 of chapter 2, he says, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world. And so union with Christ in his death, resurrection, and life is what Paul is talking about in terms of our eternal identity and status. And Paul uses this kind of language uh, frequently in his other letters as well. You find this language in Ephesians chapters 1 and 2. And perhaps uh, in a most concentrated way, in the book of Romans, chapter 6, verses 1 to 14, where Paul goes into great detail about our union with Christ in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection. And even listen to Paul's own testimony in Galatians, chapter 2, verse 20. He says this, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. He says, in the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He's testifying there of of living a Christ-centered life. And then even earlier in the book of Colossians, back in chapter 1, Paul describes our new eternal identity in terms of having been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. He says that in verses 13 and 14 of chapter 1. And also a little bit later in chapter 1, verses 19 to 23, he speaks about how though we were once alienated from God, we've been reconciled to him through the body and through the blood of Jesus. And beloved, in all of this, Paul's emphasizing the riches, the riches of our union and identity in Christ. Again, spiritually and eternally, we have died with him, we've been raised with him, and now, as he says there in verse 3 of chapter 3, our lives are hidden with Christ in God. What does that mean, that our lives are hidden with Christ in God? Well, there's at least two aspects of what Paul means by saying that our lives are hidden with Christ in God. On the one hand, the sense of hidden means that the world does not yet see the full glory of our identity in Christ. It's a glory that is veiled. It's a glory that is hidden until it will be revealed when Jesus returns. And this is spoken of in many other places in Scripture as well. Paul talks about it in Romans chapter 8. The Apostle John in 1 John 3 verse 2 uh, talks about this truth and this concept. But it means that we haven't yet fully been revealed for what we will be. You think about it even when 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 a woman becomes pregnant, when a child is conceived within a woman, there's a sense in which that life is real and it's there, but it's hidden, right? And it's not until the time of birth that that child is revealed in its fullness. Now, of course, today we have all kinds of fancy technology that a lot of different aspects of that little one can be known. But you get the point of the illustration. There's a sense in which when we are born anew, when we are born from above, when we are reborn of God, that we become hidden in the very life of God. And it's not going to be until Jesus returns that the fullness of the glory of our life in his glory will be revealed and will be known. And that's what we anticipate. So that's one sense of that hiddenness. But there's another sense of this hiddenness that has to do with safety and security. What do you do when you have something valuable in your home that you don't want anybody to ever find or get? What do you do? You hide it. And you try to keep it safe. Well, there's that sense of what Paul means when he talks about our lives being hidden in Christ with God. We are safe. We are secure, eternally safe, eternally secure in God. It's possible that Paul is drawing on language from the Psalms. There's a few different places where the psalmists talk about God being his hiding place, such as in Psalm 27, verse 5 psalm 31 verse 20 psalm 32 verse 7 he's affirming that god is his place of safety his place of security his place of refuge and this is undoubtedly bound up in paul's thought as he thinks of our lives being hidden because he's he's affirming and acknowledging the security the safety of our life in god's life in christ our security is eternal We are eternally secure. We can no more lose our salvation than God can be unfaithful to his promises and to his purposes. Beloved Christian, God wants you to know who you are. He wants you to know something of your identity and your status. And, of course, this isn't the only place where he reveals these things. We see it throughout his word. And it's a particular emphasis even in the writings of the Apostle Paul. God wants his people to know the riches of full assurance of our identity and our status in Christ, of what it means to have union with him, the one in whom, as Paul says in chapter 2, verse 3 of Colossians, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And so you see, when you come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you died to all of the elemental principles and spirits of the world. All of the false ways of thinking Which includes all of the false categories of ways that we try to establish our worth and our identity and our significance. Such things as simply ethnicity or abilities or our physical appearance or our profession or our personality, or our intelligence, or how much money we do or don't have, or what material things we do or don't possess. There's so many categories by which we try to establish our identity and our status and our worth, aren't there? And God is saying, no, you need to look to me and know your worth and your identity for who you are in Christ, in union with God in Christ through the Spirit. You have union with him. You're a child of God. You're a part of his kingdom. So, beloved, do you know your identity, your eternal identity in Christ? Do you think of your worth and your identity and your status on worldly terms or on God's terms? Knowing that the fullness of your life in Christ is hidden. It's yet to be fully revealed well-knowing and being assured of our eternal identity in Christ, thinking of ourselves on God's terms and not on the world's terms, it's foundational, it's essential to fulfilling then our God-given duty. So knowing our eternal identity in Christ is at the heart of living a Christ-centered life, and this leads to the second part of this call that I want to zero in on now at the end of verse 1 and verse 2. The second part is this, do your present duty. In light of your eternal identity, do your present duty. And again, you see how what Paul says now at the end of verse 1 and verse 2 is bookended by these references in verse at the beginning of verse 1 and then in verse 3. But of course, here's the duty. Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not On things that are on earth. Now these are the imperative binding commands of the passage. They're very evident. Seek and set your minds on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. The force of the term to seek means to give an all-out focused diligent effort It means to have an intense and a totally consuming pursuit of the object that is being sought. Like being on the hunt for the greatest of treasures imaginable. It means to be consumed in that sense. It's the same type of seeking. It's the same word that Jesus uses in Matthew chapter 6 verse 33 when he says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness as a matter of unparalleled priority in our hearts and in our lives, is to be seeking God and his kingdom and his righteousness first. And that's really what Paul is expressing here. That kind of intensity. Think about Olympic athletes who seek with all of their being to do whatever is necessary to win a gold medal. That's the intensity that's behind this word. And so what Paul is talking about is orienting our entire lives around knowing, trusting, and obeying God in Jesus Christ. Again, it's not just this vague, mystical heaven. It's heaven where Jesus is presently seated at the right hand of God the Father. And he's there because of his death and because of his resurrection and his ascension. And so it involves the focus of our wills, It involves the focus of our minds, which is why Paul reinforces it by specifically saying, set your minds on things above and not on things that are on earth. It's intense, it's all-consuming, it's mental. It involves our minds around his truth. And so what Paul's doing with this call in in verses 1 to 4, which he's going to further unpack through the rest of the letter, what he's really doing is elaborating on the central call that he's already made back in chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. You remember what he says there? He says, and this is really at the very heart of the whole letter, and again, what he now says in chapter 3 is just elaborating on this. So he says, verses 6 and 7 of chapter 2, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith just as you were taught abounding in thanksgiving and so you see Paul is far from calling Christians to have an escapist run for the hills hide your head in the sand have a pie in the sky kind of mentality that is so far from God's will and purposes no rather Paul is calling for Christians to walk by faith in Jesus in the midst of of a wicked, difficult, rebellious world. He's calling for us to seek and to set our minds on Christ who rules in absolute supremacy and sufficiency at the right hand of God. It means to know him. It means to live in the fullness of all that he accomplished for us in his life and his death and his resurrection, redemption, the forgiveness of our sins, his righteousness being credited to us, us being adopted as God's children and and every spiritual blessing that he's given to live in the fullness of that. That's what is behind this call to seek him, which is at the heart of our duty before God, our present duty to be seeking him, to be setting our mind on him. And as we live in this fallen world, then we are to know we're to have a deepening knowledge of an assurance in our eternal identity in Christ, and from that to do our present duty in seeking and setting our minds on Him, finding Him continually to be our all in all. Now, when Paul makes a clear contrast in verses 1 and 2, and you see this, he's making a contrast between the things that are above and not seeking and not setting our minds on the things that are on earth. And what he's clearly doing is is contrasting what it means to walk by faith in Christ rather than walking by the false teaching that is bound up within the world, all the kinds of things that he's talked about in chapter 2, and he's going to go on to say a little bit more about in chapter 3. In other words, his call is a call to seek and set our minds on the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ and to turn away from every false religious ambition that we might have and think by which we can make ourselves right and presentable to God. And a lot of those things that he identifies in chapter 2, and we talked about these in a little more detail last week, such things as legalism, asceticism, mysticism, ritualism, and on down the line. He argues and he puts forth clearly in chapter 2, all of those things are impotent for bringing about any real change and making us right with God. Because being right with God and being transformed only comes through Christ. Now even in chapter 3, he's going to get more specific, beginning in verse 5, about what it means to seek the things that are above and not seek the things of earth. It means to put to death certain things, and it means to put on certain things. So look at verse 5 and following, for instance. I'll just touch on this, and we're going to be moving more deeply into this, of course, next week, Lord willing. But this present duty of seeking the things above and seeking Christ means negatively, as he says in verse 5, to put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. It's false worship. Verse six, on account of these, he says, the wrath of God is coming. And in these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. He says, verse 11 here, there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and is in all. You see how everything he's saying is expressing the sense of seeking the things above, and he's describing many of the things of this earth well, then positively in verse 12, the present duty also means to put on certain things. So look at what he says in excuse me in verse 12 and following. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, there's that identity again, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving one another as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive, and above all these, put on love, He's saying, in essence, put off the old clothes of the old man of the world and put on the new clothes of Christ. And that's the the outworking of what it means to be seeking the things above and not seeking the things of this earth. And then actually in verse 18 into chapter 4, Paul goes on exhorting how this seeking and setting our minds on things above, what it should look like in our homes And what it should look like as we rub shoulders with unbelievers in the world. So you see, he's not saying, pack your bags and get out of the world. And he's certainly not saying, pack your bags and get out of California. He's saying, be who you are, where you are, and bear witness of Christ. And love Christ and serve Christ and minister to others, both in and out of the body of Christ. There's a corporate reality to all of this. Now, here's a key for us to clarify, I think, at this point. With these commands of the, of the nature of our duty, as Paul sort of says that in a general way there in verse 1 and 2 about seeking and setting our minds on things above and then working it out in more detail, it's important to clarify he is not saying that it is wrong at a certain level to desire, to enjoy, and to some extent even think about All of the good, lawful, wonderful things that the Lord gives us in life on earth to enjoy, to his glory. All kinds of common grace blessings, of food, of work, of relationships, of education, of the blessings of marriage, of the blessings of singleness, of things such as sports, except when your team loses of course but it's great when they win but it's no fun when they lose but it's not everything but, 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 but those are common graces other things like the beauty and the adventures of creation and vacations and we could go on he's, he's not ruling those out altogether. but by not even mentioning any of those things I think he's sort of implicitly saying don't sacrifice the, less, the, the best things for the lesser things guard against any of those things ever becoming idolatrous but you see he's not calling for an escapist ascetic bury your head in the sand disposition in fact over in first timothy chapter four verses four and five paul says everything created by god is good nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving for it's made holy by the word of god and prayer. And then a little bit later, at the end of the letter, in chapter 6, verse 17, he says that God is the one who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. So Paul's not denying the reality of reasonable, legitimate earthly things that God gives for for our enjoyment and for his glory. But he's championing that we ought to ever have our lives consumed by a seeking and a setting of our minds on the ultimate things above in Christ to know Him, to walk with Him. And so it begs the question, what's, what is it that you're ultimately seeking, seeking? What is it that drives your life? What's the default mode of, of your mind? Where does it go when you have nothing else to think about? God's calling us to live distinctively and passionately Christ-centered lives. He's calling us to zealously worship Christ alone, to put to death every form of worldly idolatry, and to put on all that expresses our new life in Christ. And that's what he's calling for, and that's our present duty, is to know Christ and to walk with Christ. And so this raises the question again, not only of where you find your worth and your identity and your status, But what are you ultimately seeking? And what ultimately consumes your mind, your affections, your desires, your ambitions? As I mentioned, what's the default mode of your thoughts and of your affections? And is your life oriented, oriented around the things above in Christ or around things on this earth? Beloved, God calls us who are his people to live a Christ-centered life. It involves knowing our eternal identity. It means doing our present duty of seeking and setting our minds on the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ. It's to be an ongoing, continual pursuit. And it brings us to the third part of this call that we see in verse 4. And it is to know your future destiny. Know your identity, do your present duty, and know your future destiny. And I want to read verse 3 leading into verse 4 because it all ties together. He says, you've died. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. Here it is, verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And you see how what Paul says in verse 4 about our future glorious destiny in Christ, it is directly connected with our identity in him. If you have union in Christ, your life is hidden with him in God. As I mentioned earlier, that in part means it's safe and secure, though it is not known by the world now. But the fullness and glory of what our life in Christ is will appear when Christ appears. And Paul is speaking of the glorious, certain, and imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ when the unimaginable radiance of his eternal glory will appear and we who are in him will be with him. Paul speaks of this in many other places. One of those is in Philippians 3. At the end of Philippians 3 verses 20 and 21, he says it this way, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power of, that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And you see, with what Paul is talking about here in our future destiny, this has to do with real hope, real eternal hope. And do you see again the force and the sweetness of Paul's logic here within this whole passage? In other words, he's not just giving us cold, rigid commands of duty that we're to do as Christians. No, he's instead giving us life-giving, joy-producing, fruit-producing commands to seek and to set our minds on the person and work of God in Christ. And that is, again, to live a Christ-centered life. But he's framing all of this framing it all around the knowledge on the one side of our eternal eternal identity and union with Christ and on the other side of our future destiny in glory with Christ. So in other words, he's giving us what is the right motivation for living the Christian life, the right motivation for putting off all of the clothes of the old man and putting on the clothes of Christ, as again he's going to go on to speak about in detail. To be motivated by a recognition of our of our eternal identity, of our future destiny. And so, in light of all of this, I would just draw this together and, and ask the question again, then is it, is it possible to be so heavenly minded that you can be no earthly good? Well, again, in one sense, yes, if you have an erroneous Uh, misguided idolatrous and ultimately earthly understanding of what it means to be heavenly minded if you're just thinking about heaven in some worldly terms then then you're probably going to be no earthly good for sure but as we hear loud and clear from this passage only the truly heavenly minded person that is the fully christ-centered person can be both earthly and eternally good And so God calls us to be truly heavenly-minded by being fully Christ-centered, to know our eternal identity, to do our present duty of seeking and setting our minds on Christ, and to know our future destiny, and to live by faith, striving to put to death all of the things that are a part of, of, of the old man on earth and putting on the new man in Christ. You know, there's so many examples through history of believers who have done immeasurably good, both in an earthly and in an eternal sense. One writer has observed this. He says, quote, committed heavenly minded Christians have always tackled the social, environmental, and political problems of the day. Some of the most impactful people in history have been Christians whose faith moved them to action. Devoted Christians such as John Newton and William Wilberforce, who worked tirelessly to abolish the slave trade in England. Christians such as missionary Amy Carmichael, philanthropist George Mueller, and journalist Robert Rakes, who rescued children in peril and founded orphanages and established schools. And the writer goes on to say that history is full of Christians who positively impacted the world. Their motivation was not simply the need of social reform, but they were compelled to do what they did by their strong faith in Jesus and their heavenly focus upon him. It's the very fact that Christians are heavenly minded that causes them to help others while spreading the life-changing truth of the gospel. And we could draw on countless other examples where people have done great earthly and ultimately eternal good in the hope of the gospel. And what this means for you and me, brothers and sisters in Christ, if you know him, is that you and I don't inherently need to change our circumstances. We don't need to change our job. We don't need to change this or change that. You know, all the things that we think would be so much better if, the, uh, if we could just change whatever the fill-in-the-blank thing is in our own lives. If I could just change this, then it would really be good. Now, maybe God is providing opportunity for your circumstances to change in some ways, and that's fine. Just walk carefully and make sure your mind is set on Christ and your heart is set on Christ and that you're striving to live a Christ-centered life. But here's the key question. In your present circumstances, your immediate circumstances, whether you're a man or a woman, young or old, single, married, kids, no kids, good health, bad health, rich, poor, in your present circumstances today, how does God want you to live a Christ-centered life? For you today, what does it mean to set your mind on things above, to seek Christ above and not the things on earth? You've probably heard the saying bloom where you're planted right well it's not bad theology if we understand it in terms of seeking to live a christ-centered life in view of our identity in view of our duty in view of our destiny and honestly as i was drawing this together it just couldn't help but think of our dear brother and friend don Kinzel because i think he exemplified that i think he exemplified that and Again, as many of you know, he had just turned 90 a week ago this last Friday, and then it was just this past Friday, a little bit after 5 o'clock, that he took his last breath on this earth. He had been involved in a, for those of you that don't know, he had been involved in a bad accident on Labor Day. And the context, a a little bit about that situation, was that he, you may know, he lived down in Lodi with uh, his daughter, and he had gone up to Roseville to... Uh, serve and to help a daughter-in-law who had just become a widow a few months ago to help her with some projects around the home which is what Don did and that was him helping with such things using his God-given skills and abilities and time to help others in any way that they knew he He was in that sense blooming where God had planted him seeking to live a Christ-centered life And as he had finished out the work that he was doing at this daughter-in-law's home in Roseville, uh, just moments after he left is when this accident tragically happened. And a large pickup truck ran directly into his driver's side of his small pickup truck. And he was in ICU for uh, quite a while, almost two weeks, and then again went home to be with the Lord this last Friday. And his faith became sight. But among other things, even as we rightly grieve, yet we do so with hope in Christ, and we thank God for his good work in Don's life and the faithful example he was of a reminder of what it means to live a Christ-centered life where you're at and to strive to be faithful to do that. So may God help you. May God help me to do the same. Let me lead us in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word so Straightforward, so clear. It's often not difficult for us to understand. It's just difficult for us to uh, stomach uh, because it convicts us, even as you encourage us through your word. Father, there may be some here present today who do not know you, who ultimately, as Paul says a little bit later there in Colossians 3, are under your wrath. We pray that they would be convicted. We pray that you would bring them to repentance and to faith in the Lord Jesus. Uh, that they might be delivered from your eternal judgment. And for those of us whom you've brought to faith, may you help us so to live in light of our identity, in light of the duty that you call us to, to seek and to set our minds on on Christ and all that you are in Christ. And Father, to be mindful of the future destiny that you've called us to. Oh God, work these things out in each one of our lives uh, for our good and for our fruitfulness and for your glory in all of it, in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.